podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast. If this is your first time, well, welcome. Every week, Dave and I talk all things Disney, pop culture, with never-before-heard stories, behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, park attractions, performances, books, and so much more. Once again, I'm your co-host, not your go- ghost host, but your co-host, <laughs> your ghost host, Al John Go, musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culturist. And you can contact me, Al John, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard. I'm an artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, as well as like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Hi, Al John. I am back from uh, my uh, uh, travels and uh, the use of the mobile Skull Rock podcast studio. I love it. I love it. So you pick (laughs) up and go, you hop on a jet, you head on over there, you celebrate uh, your mom's birthday, huge milestone. And, well, uh, a little bit. It's a, it's a belated birthday because belated it's, birthday, right? it's 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 a good four months after her ninetieth birthday. But oh. it was the first time I got to see her in thirteen months. It's unbelievable, right? It's nice to actually see people again. You know, under CDC, you know, uh, rules and regulations, all that. It, it really is. And I'll tell you what, it, uh, traveling, uh, it's like there's no pandemic. The plane was full. It was uh, on both directions, you know, go, going to New York and coming back from New York. The plane was packed. Uh, but I took all the necessary precautions and uh, I uh, survived the trip. How was the airport? You know, the airport was, uh, a, it wasn't as busy as I've normally seen it, mm-hmm. uh, but it was, it was fairly full. Uh, and most people were observing uh, face masks, but there was also people that, you know, had it down below their nose. I, I mean, after a year, Al John, don't you think people know, should know how to wear a face mask? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 it's just, it, it just, it's puzzling. It is, it is puzzling to me. It's puzzling to me. Well, it, it's puzzling to me. Some of the logic people have, but I, I get it. I get it. I totally get it. And it, it will get there, you know, for, yeah. for, for people that want to protect themselves and are looking out for other people. I get it. Even some of my friends, like, you know, they, they are resistant and I say, okay, I get it. I get it. So you can continue if you want to just hold yourself up and that's, that's fine. Protect yourself if you want, or don't protect yourself. I I have my two vaccines. I will continue to wear face mask. I'll do whatever I feel I need to, to protect myself and my family. I'm the same way. And look, when I traveled, I wore a a KN95 face mask. And then I covered that with a triple fabric uh, uh, face mask on top of that. So I I just, you know, to me, I was just being extra cautious and I'm glad I did. Yeah. And you can still get it. Look, it, it is what it is, right? It is what it is. And you can still get it. I mean, this is not, you know, just because you're you're fully vaccinated and like yourself and myself, we have the, the two shots yeah. doesn't necessarily mean you won't get it because like the flu, it will mutate and it's got other things. Sure. But hey, yeah. look, man, 
I, I want to get out there. I want to go to the parks. I want to go to movies. I want to engage in my with my family like I am uh, today. Um, you know, I, I just want to get back out there and, and get some sunlight on myself and, and breathe in some fresh air uh, in the great outdoors. And that's and that's what I'm going to do. So absolutely. And yeah. you know what? Uh, we're, we're slowly getting back to where we're heading towards normalcy. So uh, which is which is a good thing. And uh, and speaking of which, there, there's a lot of news uh, that we have happening here. Skull Rock Podcast ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. You are the king of segues, Dave. And, I don't know. Uh, I, I try. <laughs> Harrison Ford, Phoebe Walker Bridge are among those cast for the new Indiana Jones movie. You sent this to me from the Hollywood Reporter, Dave. Mads Mikkelsen is also headed to Indiana Jones as well. Hey, um, do you think that there's a possibility that Mads Mikkelsen will play a villain? You know, <laughs> he seems he seems to be in that groove. You know, he played a really vile uh, a villain in one of the James Bond movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, boy, I have to I, it was the remake of Casino Royale. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That he was in. Yeah. And of course, he also played uh, Casilius, I think, in uh, yes, uh, in Doctor Strange. Yeah. Um, and but he also played a really good dude in Rogue One. Um, but the Mickelson, you know, the brothers themselves are, are great actors, but, uh, Mads in particular was great. Um, I think he did a really fantastic job as, um, Hannibal Lecter in the, the, the Lecter series, Hannibal series that was on NBC for, for a few mm-hmm. years. And it yeah. says here, yeah, he's, uh, he's going to be doing the film. It looks like James Mangold, who was the filmmaker behind Logan, my, my favorite, uh, X-Men Fox movie. Uh, that they put out was amazing. So uh, there you go. He's going to be taking over directing duties from Steven Spielberg. I don't know what that necessarily means. Um, well, you know something. It's like you know Spielberg's got a lot on his plate. He well, can't he, direct everything. He does, and, and I like the fact that you know they're bringing in another filmmaker. Yeah, that this is true. But you also think I think there was some interesting back and forth between Steven Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy. It was kind of weird. I don't know if we don't need to get into it, but. There was some weirdness there. There was some weirdness. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Okay. But uh, do you know what I'm referencing? <laughs> no, I have no idea, actually. Yeah, he kind of, because uh, Kathleen had, had worked for so many filmmakers over the years, including Steven. And sure. um, recently there was some stuff that Steven said that was not um, very flattering. Uh, mm. But then there was some stuff that she had said that took, uh, that basically took credit for a lot of uh, some of Steven's success, which to me is kind of, I don't know if anyone should take credit for Steven Spielberg. No, no, I don't think so. I'm not aware of that, but you know, I will say that, you know, she, um, you know, Kathleen Kennedy's a lovely person. I met her once. Uh, She seemed very nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And, you know, I just love the fact that they're doing an Indiana Jones five. I agree. I love love the whole franchise. I I do. I do too. I think, uh, I think it's great that, Beyond Star Wars, they are doing other franchise films like Indiana Jones, and uh, I think it's great. Um, but once again, you know, and I, and I alluded to this as well, Phoebe Walker, uh, Waller-Bridge to star with Harrison Ford. And that's another thing um, that's great because uh, a female lead 
There you go. Yeah, lovely. And she's a wonderful English uh, actress. Uh, she is somebody uh, who, if you haven't seen the Fleabag series that she did, uh, and I'm not sure, was that on Netflix? Yeah, I, I think so. I, they're all starting to blur together. I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't separate them anymore. You know? Exactly. Uh, now Waller, yeah. Services. Now Waller Bridge previously teamed up uh, at Lucasfilm to do uh, Le Thirty Seven. Um, or which was, uh, was it, uh, L three, three, seven, which was leet. I guess that was the, uh, the droid that had the hots for Orlando Calrissian. Mm, okay. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, well, you yeah, go. good, good stuff anyway. And, uh, snuck in there was the fact that uh, legendary composer, John Williams, uh, was going to do the score returning, as well, yeah, which is, which is wonderful. But you know, something, speaking of English actresses, uh, I have to say, uh, Al John, I was very, very saddened and surprised when I read this piece about Helen McCrory, uh, the English stage and screen star who passed away at 52. Can you believe that? Oh, yeah. Oh. I mean, she was incredible. She she's a great actress and she she was in the pink uh, the Peaky Blinders series uh which was absolutely fantastic if you haven't seen that. Yeah, well, I know her from Harry Potter. Harry Potter, right. she's been in so many things. Right. So once again, wow, 52, certainly very young, uh, you know, and it seems to me like this is just, it's so tragic when these these great actors and actresses pass away, especially after at, at such an early age. Um, I think she was just hitting her stride uh, with some of the stuff she was doing. She, she really just uh, was a wonderful actress to watch. And, and I would encourage people, if you haven't seen the Peaky Blinders series, you should, you should absolutely stream that. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, wonderful show. Well, absolutely. And she was in Skyfall as well for the James Bond fans. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's a great, great actress uh, yeah. for sure. And well, yeah. And this past week, we, we also lost uh, Felix Silla, who played Cousin It on the original Adams Family TV show. Oh, man. He was eight, 84 years old. But boy, I think that's, uh, that's something else because um, I think most of that cast is gone with the exception of Wednesday and Pugsley. Yeah. Am I, am I right on I that? I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. But, you know, he's been on so many uh, different TV shows and movies over the years, including uh, where I would know him too. Uh, just growing up, uh, he was an ET and Poltergeist and Howard mm -hmm. the Duck, also in HR Puff and Stuff, which yeah. I love so much for Sid and Marty Croft. But uh, sure. I think a lot of people may also know him. As far as I know, he was also uh, the robot in uh, Buck Rogers, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, bitty, 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 I mean, bitty, you know, he, 84 years old, he had a great career. Uh, a lot of people might not recognize him because he was constantly in costume. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because he was one of those those actors that was always, you know, he played the robot or he played the, you know, um, he played an Ewok in Star Wars as well. So he was always one of those actors because of his stature. He was able to play these giant roles, yeah, um, yeah. you know, that he'll always be known for. And he, and he was a, a favorite among convention goers because he would always go, go to these comic cons and things and sign autographs. But uh, once again, you know, what a great life. Um, and he will be missed because he was really part of that, the whole genre, uh, you know, the sci-fi, mm -hmm. uh, sci-fi fantasy genre. So, 
Sure. But you know what? Uh, he will live on uh, in infamy, as they say. That's right. Uh, with, uh, you know, in, in all these movies that he was in. Yeah. Uh, that, that will always be there, yeah. uh, which is a wonderful thing. It will always be streaming on Amazon Prime. Well, hey, that was a great segue. I, I see. Look at that. You're you're just going right in there, man. I, I know, uh, right? I've taken notes from Amaz- you. It was. It came out this past week that Amazon Prime passed 200 million subscribers oh for goodness. their streaming service. Oh I mean, that goodness. that's pretty amazing. Well, when you bundle it up, you know, with Amazon, when you get the Amazon service, it is a tremendous value. And I, oh, I, I get unbelievable. it. I totally get it. And I'm totally on board. I've been an Amazon prime member for a long time. You know, I've, I still support local businesses, but it is very convenient for things that you don't necessarily, uh, or you can't necessarily readily get. And during the time of the pandemic, when sometimes you just needed to call, call out for things, uh, Amazon was there and they were there for us with streaming as well. So and, and you know something I have to say with the pandemic and my mother being 90 years old, she's actually been using Amazon uh, Fresh uh, to have yeah. Uh, yeah. groceries delivered to the house, which has been a real godsend for her. Yes. Uh, because, you know, as, a, as you know, she she's 90, she's rambunctious and she still lives on her own. Uh, you know, she's, uh, she still drives, she's still got her wits about her, yes. uh, but she's being very safe. Absolutely. And, in terms of context, right? So they surpass 200 million subscribers, Amazon. Netflix has about 204 million. Okay. That's a lot. And Disney is right there, right next to them with over 100 million right now. So they're chomping at the bit and Disney hasn't even turned on all of its uh, new services like uh, Star and other things uh, in other countries. Uh, those yeah. numbers haven't even reflected the, the type of numbers and growth that Disney will get over the course of this year alone. So I, yeah. I would suspect that uh, Disney will probably get you know 150 million by the end of the year, uh, which will further uh, close the gap between uh, all those services. Um, I have That's no quite, doubt. I have no doubt. Yeah, that is a that is quite a bit of growth there, but uh, that is an interesting note. Now, speaking yeah. of Disney, speaking, speaking of, Disney, of Disney, speaking of Disney, <laughs> um, I, I you know it, it's interesting when Disney uh, acquired Fox. How many of the franchises uh, came along with that? And along with that comes to get in the chopper. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's yeah. <laughs> Predator. Uh, the screenwriters, by the way, are suing Disney to recapture the rights for the Predator series. And uh, Jim and John Thomas, the brothers who wrote the series in 1987 for that action film, filed a lawsuit against the, the House of Mouse um, because they are not doing anything with the franchise right now. Apparently, um, they have to wait 35 years for newer works and different things like that. But uh, I don't know if they're going to win, Dave. Well, you know something, I, I, this is, this is one of those stories where I I just think it erodes the Disney brand when these things come out, because, uh, this is like we talked about several months ago with, uh, uh, the writer of some of the star Wars stories uh, in book form, uh, suing for royalties. Um, you know, this doesn't bode well for the Disney brand. When these kinds of stories continue to pop up where they're essentially abusing talent and and ripping off talent in in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Yeah. They said that, um, you know, it's interesting because Predator 
they they started doing Predator films um, under 20th Century Fox, and it's become a big franchise. And it, as they continue to work on those franchises, I would think that Disney, because the, not enough time has lapsed between the last Predators franchise film and this um, this lawsuit. So it seems to me like they're still keeping the franchise alive, right? Am I am I wrong to, to kind of uh, you know something? The way I read this story was that they the the brothers notified Disney that they wanted to take the franchise back, uh, oh, yeah, because nothing was being done, and uh, they didn't get a response right away, and and then you know so much time had passed and then all of a sudden Disney responded uh, claiming one thing or another I wasn't see. done correctly. So, I see. you know, I, again, these are the types of things that just, um, you know, they, they, they take away from the brand. They erode the brand mm-hmm. and, and it, it shouldn't be happening. Well, once again, someone, someone at Disney's messed up then, you know, they, they needed yeah. to, they needed to make sure that if their intent was to, to continue with the the series, you know they 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 always they can always do something to make sure that a series is something is going on under development, right? And and kind oh, of absolutely. do, do yeah. a placeholder for those. Of course, things. there there's there, there's a million ways to handle these things where uh, it doesn't have to go public. You know, and and it's unfortunate that uh, uh, these things keep popping up. But you know what's not unfortunate? What's that? The box office is roaring back. That's Roar. what's not unfortunate. I am so right. thrilled oh, yeah. that, uh, you know, this morning I saw a note come through that Godzilla versus Kong roars to pandemic best $390.2 million globally. That tells me people are going to the movie theaters and I'm happy about that. This is true. Uh, I'm excited about it, A, because it brings back the big monster, you know, movie franchise that I love so much. And, uh, this is great. And I, I can't wait to now, unfortunately I can't go to the theaters yet. We're still trying to test the waters on, uh, our, our kids, boo and Jack, Jack, you know, they're my Pixar kids. So (laughs) we gotta, we gotta wait a little bit because I think they're a little ornery, but, uh, and uh, and, you know, I have to tell you Al John, what was really surprising to me uh was that, uh, Cinerama Dome and Pacific theaters, uh, is essentially shutting down, and I'm I'm hoping that somebody steps in to to rescue that uh, because the Cinerama Dome out here in Los Angeles, I mean, boy, I I saw uh, a restored print of Lawrence of Arabia on that screen at the Cinerama Dome, and it was absolutely, I mean, it was an event to me. It was yeah. it was amazing to go there. And so, you know, I'm really hoping that somebody steps up and, and tries to rescue uh, those theaters because it, it just seems like there's, you know, they're going to come back this summer and, and, and they just need to be, you know, they need to open their doors and get people back in. Agreed. Agreed. I, well, I can't wait. I'm, I'm certainly happy for the theaters um, because once again, it took a movie like this to bring people out. Godzilla versus Kong, I think, is is a great film. Uh, can't wait to um, to actually see it, maybe in the theaters or at least a drive-in theater. You know, hopefully it'll it'll last long enough for us to to make our way out there to the drive-in. But um, hopefully, this is a, a good sign, Dave. 
I, I think so. And, uh, you know, another good sign is that we've got a fantastic guest today. Uh, is uh, His name is Kirk Wise. He's a director. Uh, he directed, he co-directed Beauty and the Beast, uh, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, uh, The uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, I mean, just uh, amazing films. And uh, he's in the green room. And I think it's time for us to go to our guest. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, uh, as promised, we have a wonderful guest today. Uh, he's he's been an animator, a story artist, a writer, a director, which most people are going to know because he's directed some uh, incredible films like Beauty and the Beast and The Hunchback and Atlantis: The Lost Empire, and it goes on and on and on. I want to welcome Kirk Wise to the Skull Rock Podcast. Kirk, Ooh. welcome. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, I, you know, as I've said with so many guests, Kirk, we can't possibly cover your entire career in an hour interview. So we're just going to say right up front, we're going to focus on your early career and we're going to have you back at a future date to talk about more things that you've done in your career. How's that sound? That sounds great. <laughs> so so tell, tell our listeners, Kirk, if you would, how, how it all started. Were you one of those guys that was drawing funny cartoons and getting into trouble in high school or, you know, <laughs> how, how did that all happen? Yeah. I mean, uh, like so many people that you've interviewed, uh, I've been drawing, you know, literally ever since I was old enough to hold a pencil or a crayon. And um, uh, even though I loved drawing, my, my earliest childhood ambition was to be a garbage man. <laughs> and <laughs> I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was born in San Francisco and uh, lived all over the Bay Area, but, but uh, uh, primarily in Palo Alto. But when I was really little, I lived in Sausalito, which is a, which is a, a, small, a, a uh, small city just across the Bay from San Francisco. And uh, uh, when I was living in Sausalito, I, I was uh, obsessed with, with the garbage truck. I used to follow the garbage truck every morning up and down the street, you know, watching. It just looked like such a fun job, you know, hanging off the back of the truck and making a big old racket with the cans and dumping the garbage in the garbage manager and pulling the lever and watching this big, this big arm come down and, and, and pull the garbage into the truck. I just thought that was so cool. So I went home and I remember I was about, this is, I couldn't have been older than six or seven. I'm, I, I'm thinking probably between six and seven. So this would put me at about, 1968, 69, um, I went home and I drew a picture of the garbage truck and the garbage man. And I even wrote the name of the sanitation company on the side of the garbage truck. So parallel to this, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, the local paper, um, used to have this feature in the comics pages called uh, Junior Art Champion. And every week they would select like a young artist and they would publish their drawing right there in the comics pages, you know, right next to Peanuts and, and Andy Cap and, and <laughs> you know, and Broomhilda. And uh, uh, so unbeknownst to me, my mom sent my drawing of the garbage man to the San Francisco Chronicle. And a couple weeks later, I open up the paper to the comics pages, of course, and there's my drawing. 
I was junior art champion. <laughs> you, you must have been shocked. I was absolutely shocked. I was I was completely amazed. I got like a certificate in the mail. I got like a check for ten dollars, and <laughs> and to top it all off, I got like a a, a letter from the Department of Sanitation. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Me for the free advertising, and they also sent me a check. So suddenly, wow. you know, I, I'm, I'm six or seven years old and I'm being paid for my drawings and I'm being published in a newspaper. You're and, now a paid art. You're a paid uh, artist at six years old. A professional. <laughs> and, a true pro. You know, the, the, that was literally the day that my ambition shifted from being a garbage man to being a cartoonist. So <laughs> that, that's, that's fantastic. My, that's my secret origin story. But what, that, what, that, what Kirk isn't telling you, what, what, awesome. so, what, what Kirk isn't telling you, Dave, is the fact that mom gets 15% now. <laughs> mom, is, mom is the agent. So, so you, 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 you obviously uh, realize you're going to make a living as an artist and you put the uh, dreams of being a garbage man aside for now. Yes, right? yes immediately. <laughs> It was, it was like without question. I mean, that was the most attention I'd ever gotten in my life. So, so, <laughs> so, so you fast forward to high school. Were you taking art classes in high school? And, and how did yeah, you find I, out I about actually, Cal Arts? I'll, 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 I won't go quite, uh, uh, quite that far ahead because, because uh, uh, after Sausalito, we moved down to Palo Alto, which is about 45 minutes south of San Francisco. And that's where I primarily grew up. That's really what I consider my hometown. And... Um, uh, gosh, I was in, I was, it was the summer between fourth and fifth grade. And I had a buddy, um, his name was Tommy Jordan. And he was taking a animation class at the local community center that was offered. And it was just basically turning a bunch of kids loose with super eight cameras and art supplies, you know, clay and cut paper and whatever, and just moving them around under the camera and making little short animated films. So I tagged along with him to class one day and um, he was making like this little space movie or something. And so I started drawing spaceships and stuff and cutting them out and he'd put them under the camera and, and shoot them. And so, so he ended up making this little short film basically with all of my drawings and put his own name on it. <laughs> and so when the next summer came around, I took the class so that I could make my own films and put my own name on them. <laughs> makes sense, makes sense. So, so I started making my own animated films um, uh, around the, yeah, it was, it was, it was around, uh, the fifth grade. Okay. So that would put, put it at about 1974. Wow. So, and, so, and, and what about the art classes at school? Uh, did well, you have I any? I didn't really start getting like, like any formal art training until high school. Up till then, um, all of my art training came from my father who could draw my, my father, my, my father went to the college of arts and crafts in Oakland. Right. And uh, uh, he could draw and he could paint and he could sculpt. Um, oddly, he ended up becoming a minister. And that's a whole other story. <laughs> but, uh, but he taught me how to draw. I used to, I used to you know, sit on his knee and watch him draw because he would just do it for fun. He, he, he could draw you know, realistically. He could draw cartoony. And I was utterly fascinated with this cartoon drawing. And so, so my, my initial attempts at drawing in a cartoony style were inspired by my dad's. And so between my dad and books that they that my mom and dad would get me every Christmas, which I still have <laughs> books on how to cartoon, I started polishing and, and, and honing my own drawing skills. What, what was your first what was your first animation book? 
my first animation book, my first real animation book, I would have to say would be the art of Walt Disney, the big Christopher Finch book, which I have right here. This was a Christmas present, this this very copy. Um, And that was a real eye opener because that was the first time that I saw like, like spelled out for me what the real, what the animation process was in making a Disney animated feature. Yeah. Because up until then, you know, I, I was absolutely obsessed with the comic strips. You know, my heroes were Charles Schultz and, and Walt Kelly and, and, and Johnny Hart. And I wanted to, I wanted to be a comic strip artist. Um, and even though I loved uh, cartoons and Disney animation in particular, it just seemed so unattainable. It just seemed like something that, that human beings didn't actually do. <laughs> right, right. Because they was, it was so sophisticated. And... Um, you know, it was kind of twofold. It was the gift of the art of Walt Disney by, by Christopher Finch and a visit to Disneyland when I was around, you know, probably eight years old. Um, I got a flip book, which I also have <laughs> a flip book at a Tomorrowland gift shop. Um, and it was that piece of John Lounsbury animation of Mickey Mouse from the Mickey Mouse Club doing tricks with his lariat and his hat. Yeah. And as I flipped the drawings in the flip book, it suddenly dawned on me that this is how it's done. It's a series of drawings and they're all just a little bit different from one another. And that's how this illusion of, of, of movement in life is created. And so that was between those, those, that between the art of Walt Disney and that first flip book, that, that was like the real eye opener that made me uh, uh, start to become more and more interested in uh, animation as a pursuit rather than, than uh, newspaper cartooning. Sure. And and were you uh, one of those kids that uh, drew little figures in the corner of a book to create your <laughs> own flip book? Oddly, I, I never I never did it on in the corners of books, but but I would do it like on tiny little notepads. You know, yeah. That were about you know maybe maybe two inches by three inches, these little notepads and I would I would uh, I would make flip books in those when I was young. And by the time I got to high school, I was doing cartoons for the school paper and cartoons for the yearbook. And we had a terrific art department. And, and you know, they taught, they taught drawing and painting and, and, and sure. photography and ceramics. Um, uh, well, that, but, was well, that was well before uh, art, art departments at high schools were decimated. Oh, completely. This was yeah. before, in, in the state of California, this is before Proposition 13. Yeah. In, in, this, in the state of California, um, our, uh, prior to Prop 13, our, our, our elementary schools and high schools were really well-funded because our property taxes were high. Sure. But, but uh, Howard Jarvis, uh, who was a senator, um, this was around 1979, was on this huge anti-tax crusade in the state, and he managed to get uh, changes made in, in the property tax laws in, in California, and all of our schools were just gutted. And our schools are suffering to this day because yeah, of yeah. Well, I, I think that's true across the country. I mean, yeah. art, art and music classes have have gone to to the wayside. Yeah, which is a which is a terrible shame. I mean, I feel really fortunate to have gotten really good art instruction um, um, during the time that I went to to both elementary school and high school. Yeah, yeah, right under just under the wire. <laughs> yeah, I, I I feel the same way. So so you're in high school. How, how do you find out about? Uh, I mean, like, what do you decide on going to college? How do you find out about Cal Arts and all of that? Well, what was it, the process? Um, interestingly, one of my high school best friends, who who I met uh, actually when I was still in, in middle school, 
is uh, Rob Minkoff. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, Rob Minkoff. I, I knew the, you guys were friends. I didn't yeah. realize you guys knew each other back in, in yes, Rob high school I, days. Right. Rob and I both grew up in Palo Alto. We lived only minutes from each other. And um, uh, I met Rob when I was about 13. So it was my last year of middle school. and He was a freshman in high school. And we bonded over our mutual love of Disney and cartooning. Mm. That's how we became friends. And so all through high school, you know, we both did cartoons. We, we, we both would like seek out and go to like the Disney animated feature re-releases. And um, between the two of us, and I can't remember who found out about it first, we learned about CalArts. And, uh, you know, we were both determined that this is where we wanted to go to college. It was like the only place in the United States at the time that offered uh, instruction in, in uh, Disney-style animation. Right. And the fact that it was actually staffed by former Disney directors and designers, um, you know, was, was just such a, such a plus. I mean, uh, both of us put all of our eggs in one basket. I mean, I, I believe that was the only college I applied to. <laughs> uh, talk, talk about letting it ride. Put yeah. it all on 22. <laughs> I had a little bit of an advantage because Rob was a year older than me. Mm-hmm. So Rob applied to, uh, Rob and I worked on, on uh, we made a little pencil test. We made like a little animated film together when we were in high school. It's terrible. I mean, for, for some reason, we decided we were going to make a Droopy and Spike cartoon, you know, with basically thinly disguised rip-off characters of Droopy and Spike and kind of recycled Tex Avery gags. Yeah, yeah. We were both in this big Tex Avery phase. Um, uh, but, but we made this film. But, but that's what you do. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you're, you're being inspired by stuff that's already been done, the, the stuff that you admire. And, exactly. And, and you, you want to rip it off. You want to copy it uh, to some degree uh, well, to, to learn you, it. Exactly. It's how you learn. It's like, I, yeah. I feel like the only way to kind of arrive at your own style is to, you know, sort of absorb bits and pieces of a lot of the, a lot of the, 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 work of, of the people that you admire mm-hmm. and then and then eventually you know as you as you start to get more formal instruction you start to understand the thinking behind the choices that that your heroes made yeah and yeah you're able to take that knowledge and and kind of kind of filter that through uh your own sensibilities and your influences and and eventually arrive at your own style so rob goes off to, rob puts together a portfolio and uh, uh, goes off to CalArts a year ahead of me. This would this would be uh, 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Rob was in my class. Yeah, Rob yeah. was in your class. That's right, I remember. And um, uh, I went up to CalArts at one point to, to actually visit Rob up at the school um, so I could get a feel for it. And I met Rob I, at, on that same trip. I met, I met guys who would end up becoming my friends, you know, for the next... 35, 40 years. Sure. Um, I met uh, Chris Bailey and Kelly Asbury mm-hmm. and uh, Chris Sanders and Gary Trousdale. I remember meeting all those guys on that initial trip up, up to CalArts. And so the following year, fall of 81, um, that summer I submitted my portfolio to CalArts. Rob gave me a few pointers like on what to, what to leave in and what to take out yep. because he'd, he'd kind of gotten me the inside track after having been there for a year. And I, I took his advice, and and I got I got accepted into the program. And and, and just so just so our listeners know, uh, and, and I've said this before, Al John, you know that uh, they only accept thirty students into each class a year. 
So, you know, you're really having to uh, be the cream of the crop uh, and uh, in getting accepted. Am I right, Kirk? Yeah. That, I mean, that, that was, that was a real education when, when I, when I, you know, I was over the moon that I, that I uh, actually got in. Um, but when I got to CalArts, I think the biggest kind of eye opener for me was that I was surrounded. And this was both kind of a wonderful thing and an intimidated thing, an intimidating <laughs> thing is that I was surrounded by people who were like exactly like me. They, they, they all had grown up with the same influences um, they all were like the, the, the high school cartoonist for their, for their local school yeah. paper. Um, and uh, all of them were, like, like you pointed out, Dave, considered uh, kind of the, the, the cream of the crop. And so, so uh, initially I was very intimidated being, being among, suddenly being among uh, uh, all of these like really talented artists. But, but that kind of eased off as I started to make friends. Yeah. And, and, and uh, uh, kind of learned that even the upperclassmen were really, really generous with, with what they had learned and with their knowledge. And they were really happy to help out us underclassmen, you know, with things as simple as how to use the downshooting camera. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, gosh, I, I was struggling with my first year pencil test. You know, we all had to make like a, a short silent pencil test in our first year. Yeah. And uh, I remember our, our and, and if you were a first year student, uh, Jack Hanna, who was the head of the program at the time, he would give you a theme. You know, it would either be, you know, the farm or, or the zoo, you know. <laughs> My first year was like, okay, everyone's gonna make a movie, everyone's gonna make a, a film that takes place at the zoo. And so, so I wanted to break the mold a little bit in my first year film and I didn't want to do a zoo animal. So I had a kid who, who like threw garbage on the ground, like, like threw a popcorn wrapper or something on the ground in the zoo. <laughs> you know, it just happened to be in the zoo. And a garbage can comes to life and chases after the kid and makes him pick up the garbage. And the kid refuses to do it. And so the garbage can grabs the kid and throws him up in the air. And the kid lands inside the garbage can and boom, the lid comes down. On him. And that was it. And, and Jack was tickled by it. Jack actually really, really loved the story. Um, so, so, you know, I, I got off on the right foot. I remember when I, when I pitched uh, Jack, my storyboard, um, but my first year, I really struggled with animation. It did not come easy for me. Well, that, that was true for a lot, a lot of the uh, first year, you know, because it, it was sort of uh, a lot of people struggled with it, but then all of a sudden you, it was like a runner, you hit the wall and eventually you break through that wall and all right. of a sudden it just clicks with you, right? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, one of my big breakthrough moments, I remember, I remember I was, I was really struggling with, with a pencil test. Um, I think I, I was, I was animating, you know, my kid character, the one who was coming into conflict with the, with the garbage can. And every time I would shoot it, it just looked stiff and jerky and weird and 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 it just didn't look right it didn't look the, the action wasn't smooth it was all kind of poppy and weird you know and I, and I knew and I was trying to keep the volumes consistent and stuff in the drawing it's like at least I knew that much but it just looked terrible and it was Chris Bailey who was one year ahead of me who I who I had met on that mm-hmm. initial visit to Cal Arts a year before uh, Chris Bailey sat down at my desk and looked at my drawings and he said Oh, here's what you're doing wrong. And he put and he put a sheet of paper over my drawings and he drew an arc. Yeah. And then he made spacing marks on that arc. And he explained to me 
in language that for the first time in, 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 at, at CalArts that I could actually understand, he explained to me the concept of arcs and spacing and how to time your drawings. So and, it and it clicked with you. And it clicked. It yeah. made sense. Chris Bailey saved my first year film. <laughs> they, who, who knew? Who knew? Yeah, who knew? And so, so I, when, he, when he showed it to me, I was like, oh, that was the light bulb moment. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, from that point forward, I never forgot about arcs and spacing. And I was obsessive about arcs and spacing. And, and my animation got steadily better, you know, from my first year to my second year to my third year. Sure. And, and, and you know something, you said something earlier, you know, it was a bit intimidating going into, into art school the first, you know, your first year. I, I think that's true about everybody that goes to art school because you're, you're sort of the big fish in your high school, you know, as far as being like right. the, stand, the standout artist, you know, right. the guy that everybody goes to and says, oh, can you draw this or do a cartoon right. for the yearbook or whatever. Exactly. Oh, it's now, We need a poster. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you're you're in a pond with 30 big fish. Right? <laughs> that, 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 that are all that exactly, yeah, that is exactly right. And it's so funny. And I think I think all of us have that had that same experience, you know. Yeah, and, 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 and yeah. And you're insecure, you're young, you're insecure. You the first time you're away from school, you know, from yeah. home, you're going to school, you're in college, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, you throw all of that stuff into, into the bucket and, and it makes for a, uh, uh, you know, a very, uh, difficult, I think first year. Yeah. Yeah. The, fir the first year was challenging, yeah. but I, I really loved the atmosphere at CalArts. I mean, for one thing, um, our instructors were terrific. I actually really loved all of our instructors. I had a lot of affection for, for Jack Hanna and Bob McRae. I, I learned uh, so much about like, like clear storytelling mm -hmm. uh, uh, from Jack Hanna. Yeah. I mean, Jack Hanna, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think you'd ever really compare Jack Hanna to somebody like Chuck Jones, but Jack Hanna uh, knew how to tell a story. Sure. Clear beginning, middle and end with, with a clear setup and a clear payoff and, 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 and clear staging. So, and and you know, he, he did some really terrific Donald Duck cartoons absolutely. and Chip and Chip and Dale cartoons that yeah. are, that are classics. Absolutely. You know? Chip yeah. and Dale's are wonderful. Um, my favorite Jack Hanna cartoons were his Humphrey Bear cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. Humphrey Bear cartoons were funny. Mm -hmm. and, and by that point, I think in Jack's career, um, I think, I think, I think the shorts, and I, I want to say that Jack Kinney kind of raised everybody's game because the shorts from that period were faster and funnier and a lot more aggressive in their humor. Mm -hmm. So those Humphrey Bear cartoons are still really funny. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you also, when you think about some of the instructors, aside from Jack and Bob McRae, I mean, there was T. He, there was Alma yes. Plummer. Yeah. I mean, we, were, we were very fortunate in having we were all those really guys. really lucky. I mean, yeah. I, I've, I've always said that kind of my, the, the, the twin pillars of, of my educational experience at CalArts, actually, no, actually, I got to say there were three. Um, it was, it was uh, 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 Bill Moore, for, oh, yeah. for design, <laughs> Bill um, Moore. everybody says the same thing. I mean, Bill Moore, uh, his teaching style, I don't know if it would fly today, but uh, <laughs> his teaching style was to utterly tear you down and then rebuild you. Yes. I mean, his teaching style was to shatter all preconceived notions you might've had about yourself and your talent yeah. and rebuild you from the ground up. In that respect, it was like going to boot camp. Yeah. 
it was, a, it was a, taking taking the lighter and lighting your project uh, on fire <laughs> on the wall. <laughs> yes, I, I heard legends of of, the, of setting of, of him setting up a project on fire, yeah. but uh, but it's <laughs> no, it, it, not legend. It's truth. <laughs> <laughs> so Bill Bill really transformed. You know, kind of, I mean, literally, I didn't know anything about color or design mm, until, yeah. until I took Bill's class. It was like learning a completely new language. I mean, and really, I mean, uh, for me, it was like learning like one of the, the, the secrets of the universe. Yeah. So suddenly it affected everything from my, from my approach to how I, how I drew characters to how I arranged furniture in a room. It literally, it literally was kind of a life transforming kind of brain transforming class. And for me, Bill's class was worth the entire, the entire price of tuition. Uh, secondly, T. He was was a was a huge was you know extremely beloved by me and a lot of my other classmates because T. Would, would would sit down and he would spend hours with you like on one on one. I remember he sat down with me in my second year and and worked with me on my storyboard for my second year film. You know, just very painstakingly doing these little sketches to slight to 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 like strengthen the strengthen the staging mm-hmm. and the expressions and sort of the clarity of, of of the gag. And he was extremely patient and really really kind. And I got so much so much out of him and out of his class. He was such a gentle man too. Yeah. I mean, just very soft spoken and and just lovely guy to talk to. Yeah, really really enjoyed uh, T. He was wonderful. And then my third year uh, uh, was the f- my third year was the first year that Hal Ambro um, became part of the program. Yeah, that that was uh, right after I got out of there. Yeah, yeah. Hal Ambro made a huge difference. Uh, uh, being able to go in with my scenes and have Hal go over them uh, was a again one of those huge like light bulb moments for me. I remember I remember it was Hal who first told me. Uh, uh, you know, and others might have used this analogy before, but Hal used it with me because I was trying to to animate a a very heavy character walking, mm-hmm. and um, Hal said, "A walk is a controlled fall," <laughs> <laughs> and that was another light bulb moment. It's like when he put it that way, and he demonstrated, you know, just the whole principle of animating walk, you know, with the contact and the squash and then the lift off. Yeah. The drag as the, as the foot comes through, um, the whole notion of a walk as a controlled fall stayed with me for my for my entire career. And I, I, I think that's great, though. You know, I mean, yeah. the, it's funny how those little moments really do stick to each one of us. You know, in different ways. I, I'm curious: Did you graduate from Cal Arts, or were you plucked out? Well. Um, um, Gosh, my, my, my first, my first year at CalArts, uh, uh, what I sort of learned in, in, in the, in the scuttlebutt that was, yeah. that, that went around between, between, between all the students was that, oh, well, if, if you're good, that Disney will pick you up like right after your second year. So, so, you know, and I had met people like, like Tony DeRosa right. and Tony Anselmo and, and Barbara and Barbara yeah. and, and a lot of artists who went who went to CalArts? Who got picked up by Disney after their second year? So there was there was a, a bit of a sense of expectation that that was something that that would happen. And it was after my second year um, at CalArts, so this would have been in '83, that uh, uh, Disney said, 
you know, we had the annual producer show where yeah. typically students got pulled out and put into the uh, training program where Disney turned around and said, sorry, doors are closed. We're full up. No room at the end. We're not picking anyone up this year. And, and a lot of people were just devastated. I, th- I remember Rob was really depressed. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, me and my friends just looked at each other and went, well, I guess we're coming back next year. I mean, we were just kind of philosophical about it. And yeah, you know something? I, I don't think it's a bad thing to have graduated from CalArts. I, I mean, I know some people felt, felt that, especially during that period, that, uh, it, you know, if you made it through your sophomore year and got plucked out, you know, that, that was the way it was. And yeah. so a lot of people never finished the program. But I right. always felt, I, 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 I kind of felt like, you know, that wasn't the big deal to me, you know? Yeah, I'm saying here. I mean, I actually feel like it was a blessing in disguise because if I didn't go back for my third and fourth year, I never would have met Hal. And yeah. Hal Ambro was a huge, huge influence. And, 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 you know, I, I really credit Hal with, with, with helping me get my student, my third year student film, excuse me, my third year student film up to a level where, where it actually got noticed, where it actually sure. got noticed by, by people in the industry. So, so for me, it was a, it was a total, you know, win-win. Yeah. You actually finish out the program because I, because, yeah, so you I, did, you did graduate. Yeah. I, I ended up going for all four years, but, but um, I think one of the key differences for me was that uh, midway through my uh, fourth year, um, I got a call from Daryl Van Sitters. Mm-hmm. Daryl Van Sitters had attended the producer show the previous year. So Daryl Van Sitters had seen my, had seen my third year stu- student film, uh, Kevin Lima's student film, Steve Moore's, um, Dan Jupes, and uh, he wanted to hire us. He, he he had been spun off into this into this kind of off the lot special projects unit mm-hmm. to make this goofy short for television. Yeah, and Daryl remembered our films, and Daryl wanted to hire us as freelance animators. And the plan was um, Daryl would have a small in house crew who would pose out the scenes. You know and, and, and uh, uh, time the poses on the X sheet. And then we would use those poses to animate our scenes. It's kind of like the way Chuck Jones worked at, at, at Warner Brothers. He, he would like pose out the entire short. Yeah. Um, so uh, midway through my f- fourth year, um, me and Kevin Lima and Steve Moore all started freelancing on Sport Goofy for Daryl. And so that was our introduction to the industry. And... Um, I ended up, uh, sadly, I, I actually, this is one regret, is I ended up abandoning my fourth year student film, which I had already planned out and had actually begun to animate mm. um, to do freelance animation for Daryl. Um, it, it was a really tough decision because on the one hand, I learned so much working for Daryl. I, I learned how to properly fill out an X sheet. Sure. I learned how to properly prepare my drawings so that an assistant could follow them up. You know, when you're making your own films with TellArts, you're your own assistant. You're your own cameraman. You're right. your own editor. So, so in a lot of instances, you kind of make up your own way of doing things that may not necessarily correspond to the professional accepted way of doing things. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I learned a ton from working with Daryl and working with, with the artists who, who Daryl uh, uh, had in his, in his in-house team. 
I remember he had Chris Buck and, and Toby Shelton. And I remember, God, I, 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 Daryl approved a really rough scene that I had done. And I didn't really know what the hell I was doing at the time. I mean, I was, I was really winging it. Um, there was so much I didn't know. And I remember I got the scene back from Toby Shelton and he had put red notes all over it. I mean, and he just, he just tore me a new one. I mean, he basically said, this is absolute and I can't work with this. And I was so, wow. so, so depressed. I was just like, oh my God, I suck. I don't know what I'm doing. But I had to raise my game. I had, I had to take a really deep breath. I had to be a lot more conscious of the lines that I was putting down and a lot more conscious of, of the fact that my work was going to have to be followed up by someone else. Sure. So my drawing had to be better. It had to be clearer. I, did, I, had, to, I had to leave a lot less to the imagination uh, for the assistant. And so I redid everything and finally got it at least barely up to a standard that, that Toby thought was acceptable, barely. <laughs> but that was a real uh, baptism, baptism by fire. You know, but, the, but to me, that, that is what everybody's gone through because I think the first six months that you're in a studio setting, regardless of whether it's a small unit or the full-blown features that were going on, that first six months, you, you are, it is, it, it is trial by fire. Yeah. You, are, you are in there and you are learning more than you ever had learned oh, yeah. when, you know the previous years you were at school exactly it was, just, it was, you know it was really i mean that that was probably you know one of the most formative parts of my of my education at cal arts was doing that freelance animation and the my instructors at school the the the, the instructors at, at the, of the character animation program at the time they were kind enough to give me class credit for it because that's because, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Because they recognized that I was going to learn a lot yeah, even more from this experience than I, than I would making a fourth student film. So, hey. so it was a win-win. Yeah, exactly. On a practical level, I really, really appreciate the experience Daryl gave me and it was my entryway into the industry. Right. Um, but creatively, I, I miss that I, that I didn't take advantage of freedom that I still had at CalArts to, to be, you know, a one-man band, be my own yeah. story, story person, my own director, my own animator. And, and it's, a, it's a level of freedom you only have when you're working on a student film. Sure. And, and, and uh, so I'm always sorry that I never completed that film. But, I, but I, 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 I wouldn't trade the professional experience I gained and, and the lessons I learned from that experience. Um, I wouldn't trade that for anything. So, so now, and, and I don't blame you. I mean, I, you know, to me, the, those are all great experiences that get tucked away uh, and really help form you. Um, but you graduate from CalArts, you finish the Goofy short, uh, graduate from CalArts. Uh, when did you get hired at Disney? Uh, well, it was kind of, it was kind of a, a windy road to Disney. Um, I, ended up, I ended up working on uh, The Brave Little Toaster, for, yeah, for Jerry Reese. Yeah, yeah. Which, as you know, was a project that was originated at Disney, and then Tom Wilhite, the producer, yeah, uh, uh, took it with him when he left Disney, and he hired Jerry to to make Toaster for a very low budget, and Jerry uh, hired a bunch of us Cal Arts kids right out of school. He hired me and Kevin Lima and Steve Moore and Chris Wall, 
and uh, you know about a half half a dozen other other uh, uh, recent CalArts grads, and uh, we were all we were holed up in the in this in this you know crappy little brick building just off of Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood, and uh, uh, again you know it was a, it was it was a terrific experience. I, I learned so much on Toaster, animating these little you know these little appliance characters. Um, I wasn't part of the crew that 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 uh, went to Taiwan. I ended up going to Disney. I, uh, they were they were uh, well. While most of the crew, most of the LA crew, went to Taiwan for six months to finish Toaster. Yeah. Again, for my good friend Rob Minkoff, um, I got the opportunity to come and help uh, finish kind of the last push to get uh, Basil of Baker Street finished. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that and that was your entree into Disney Animation. Yes, I I, I uh, was working uh, kind of in, in uh, under. Uh, I was kind of working under Rob. Rob 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 kind of took me under his wing a little bit, and he he handed me a few like uh, very short little. I did like a couple short shots of of Basil, one or two of Dawson, and I even did one of of uh, of. Uh, <clears throat> of Radigan for, for, for Matt O'Callaghan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Rad, Rad, it was teeny tiny Radigan, like, like, like scrambling on some gear on some of big Ben's gears, like leaping onto a, a, a gear and then leaping off. So, you know, the, the, the shot was, was barely a foot long, you know, it was just action and scrambling. Yeah. Uh, but I learned a lot, you know, Matt, Matt did a ton of drawers on what I did and, and, you know, and again, <laughs> yeah, but 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 that's but that's the early career. That exactly. that's the, the that that's what you that's what helped shape you, and and everybody goes through those things, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, so, so after Basil, um, I got laid off because you know everybody who they sort of hired on extra to kind of finish yeah. the movie and that last push got let go. So during that year that I was laid off. Um, I ended up working for Brad Bird on uh, Family Dog. That was that animated Amazing Stories episode that Brad wrote and directed. Yeah, yeah. And a, and uh, uh, a bunch of us who, who eventually all ended up at Disney worked on Family Dog. Uh, Chris Buck, uh, myself, Dan Jupe, uh, Tony Fuchile, uh, uh, Ralph Eggleston, Russ Edmonds. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's sort of a who. It's a, it's a who's here. Yeah, so who's who when you when you look at the credits on that? Yeah, and we had a blast. I mean, again, it was it was a tight budget. It was a short schedule, and we were in a, a crappy warehouse just off of Skid Row, downtown LA. But we had a blast. I mean, that was one of the funnest professional experiences I had had up up until that up to that point. Uh, Brad created a really convivial, collegial atmosphere, and there was a just a, a lot of laughter. And a lot of silliness that went on behind the scenes. Right, that, rightfully that, so. Yeah, and that that infused the whole short. I think the the, yeah. the short was, I think, I, I think the Family Dog short was was really groundbreaking. I, I I feel like it kind of set the template a little bit for shows like The Simpsons, mm -hmm. uh, where it was like this kind of skewed take on family life. And and Brad, as you know, ended up becoming like like uh, the creative consultant on on. Uh, on the Simpsons. Yeah. And he was like their secret weapon. I mean, he, he improved their designs, their animation, their staging. He went over everything. Yeah. He's got such a wicked sense of humor too. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, he's, he's, he's fabulous. He's, 
absolutely no. He's funny as hell. So so I'm a, I'm a big fan of Brad's. So so once you once you finished on Family Dog, you you came back to Disney then. Yes, yes. This is this is where where I finally kind of re-intersected with Disney. Um, um, I, I I got the opportunity to go back to Disney, but this time, believe it or not. Um, it was because I had heard, uh, again, from my good buddy, Rob, kind of my guardian angel for many years. Um, uh, Rob told me that they were hearing pitches for Winnie the Pooh ideas. Mm. They wanted to, to revive Winnie the Pooh and they wanted to do a, a series of Winnie the Pooh featurettes over at Feature Animation. By this time, Feature Animation had been moved off the lot and were in, were in that little warehouse building on Flower Street. At four, yes. yeah, this is where warehouses. I mean, you keep mentioning warehouses or oh, yeah. buildings. My whole, is, my whole life. Yeah, yeah, we we were all stuffed into that um, <laughs> one story warehouse building on exactly. Flower Street across from Imagineering. I, I can't believe some it. Of the best work I've done in my career has been under the uh, in the in the crappiest of, of surroundings. <laughs> yeah, it's, it seems to be a trend with animation. <laughs> um, so I got the so so I ended up pitching uh, a Winnie the Pooh short idea to Peter Schneider. It's my first time meeting Peter Schneider. He, he was newly installed as as the yeah. feature animation, and Peter liked the idea. And so I got set up in a room with another writer just to kick around Winnie the Pooh ideas for like for like three months. And so so we developed you know probably about a half dozen Winnie the Pooh short ideas, and we wrote them up. And nothing ever really came of it. The whole Winnie the Pooh property ended up getting shifted over to Disney TV animation, yeah. which was probably for the best. Uh, Disney TV had a much better feel for it mm-hmm. than, than, quite frankly, Jeffrey Katzenberg did. Jeffrey Katzenberg didn't, didn't like those characters, and, he, and they were soft, to use, to use Jeffrey's words for them. I mean, it's Winnie the Pooh. They're soft. They're stuffed animals. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so you, you moved on to Oliver and company. Yes. Yes. Because, because there was no more Winnie the Pooh to work on. They said, well, we can put you, we can put you to work. We're going to have you do some animation on Oliver and company, which was in production. And I was like, okay, great. You know, sounds good to me. And uh, again, I was, I was suddenly thrust into circumstances where I was just intimidated as all get out. I was working for Handel Butoy. Yeah. And Handel is an amazing animator, one of the absolute best. And he was a harsh taskmaster. Yeah. <laughs> it was virtually impossible to get anything by Handel. Not that he should have improved, not that he ever should have approved work that didn't meet his standards, but his standards were really high. Yeah. And so, so. I started to lose a lot of confidence in myself as an animator. And, and I really started to have some doubts whether this was the right path for me because I was like, wow, if, if, if Hendel keeps sending my stuff back, gee, maybe I, maybe I really suck at this. <laughs> so it was a recurring theme, you know, this, this yeah. lack of confidence. <laughs> I think all artists, particularly when you're young, your confidence can be pretty easily shaken. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, though, I, I, Kirk, I, I think that's true just of, of artists in general. Okay. I, I, you know, they're, the, everybody has that moment that they think they're a fraud and they're going to be found out. Oh, God. All of that. You know, every artist, we, we've talked about that on and off with many guests. Uh, it, it is just part of the, uh, it's a facet of being an artist. It really <laughs> it is. It must be because I, I still run up against that to this day. It's ridiculous. <laughs> 
Um, so, so uh, uh, as I was struggling with my animation for Hindel, um, uh, Oliver uh, was was having uh, story problems there, had, and and they invited a lot of the animators and even us. You know, I was technically called an animating assistant at the time, but they invited us to the meetings as well. And so, you know, being a bit of a of an upstart, I I had lots of I had lots of suggestions for the story on Oliver, and because of that, um, me and Kevin Lima and Chris Bailey all got spun off to be in a room and kind of jam on storyboards for like the climax of Oliver. So the whole warehouse rescue and uh, chase on the bridge and the death of Sykes. All of that was storyboarded by by me and Kevin and Chris, mm. and and uh, most of it ended up in the movie. So that was my first entry into storyboarding at Disney, and uh, it was after Oliver wrapped, and they weren't quite sure what to do with me. That was when I got the chance to go literally go across the street into into one of the trailers that was set up in the parking lot. Yes, where I lived. Yes, and, <laughs> and uh, uh, Charlie Fink was over there, and he had mm -hmm. newly installed as the head of uh, visual development, which was a brand new department back then. And Brian McEntee was over there, and Gary Trousdale, and Chris Sanders, and Brenda Chapman, and Joe Ramp were all over there. And so I got to go over there and play with them and do storyboards for for initially, and Kelly Asbury was there too. Uh, we, we were doing storyboards for uh, Mickey Mouse short ideas, for like Mickey Mouse featurettes. And we worked again, probably on like uh, uh, maybe three of those, but we had such a great time. And, and that was when, um, that was when I kind of permanently parted company with the notion of, of going back and, and, and being a, a animator per right. se. Yeah, I, I felt like like I had really found my tribe. When yeah, I, you you, you when found I your up in story. You found your niche. Yeah, and, exactly. And uh, and how did Cranium Command come about? Cranium Command was one of the many projects that got dropped in Charlie Fink's lap. Um, uh, he called in. Uh, Gosh, it was me and Gary and, and, you know, every so often there was like, there was like a four alarm fire and creatively speaking, and Charlie Fink would come running into the room and say, okay, everybody drop everything. Uh, we're going to, we're going to do uh, uh, army ants. And it was all because you know, Michael Eisner earlier that week said, oh, let's do something with army ants. <laughs> <laughs> so we would end up, you know, all right, we'd, we'd be drawing gags of, of, of you know, ants and 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 you know what would they use for an ambulance what would their aircraft carriers be you know all this kind of stuff you know kirk we, we're sitting here laughing but it's really i want the listeners to know it's really true that, that some top executive like michael eisner or jeffrey would say say oh we should do something with army ants and everybody just scrambled to do that everything i mean it was it was we, we they truly were, were sort of running the running the division you know, by whim at that point. Um, it happens. It happens. Know, for, for better or worse. Yeah. If, if, if you, you ask I mean, yourself, how you're, you're feeling froggy, let's see how high you can jump. You know? <laughs> I mean, just absolutely amazing. You know? So t t in a nutshell, can you tell our listeners what Cranium Command was about and what yes. it was for? Yes, absolutely. Cranium Command started its life as a uh, pre-show, an animated pre-show for an Epcot attraction. And the concept behind the Epcot attraction was 
the audience would go inside the, it was in the Wonders of Life Pavilion, would go inside the head of a 13 year old boy and follow him around on his day. And the concept was, was, was that there, there were these little characters who lived inside of his brain, kind of like the short reason and emotion. The old yeah, from the, world, from the World War II era. Exactly. So it was kind of, that was kind of the base, the, the, the genesis, genesis of the idea, but fleshed out into 3D and, and experienced kind of like a, a, a uh, multimedia kind of ride where you would be looking out through the 13-year-old boy's eyes and, and navigating him through his day you know, with, you, with your host, who was like an audio animatronic figure, who was kind of his little brain pilot. Mm. And so uh, a pre-show had been written and animated um, up in Northern California uh, by an outfit called Colossal Pictures. And uh, a talented bunch up there, they've done a lot of great work, but uh, Disney was really unhappy with the short, particularly Michael and Jeffrey. They didn't think it, it, it uh, met up to Disney standards. They just thought that the, the, the look of it and the, and the animation quality was, was poor. And they felt like it, it just didn't really, uh, 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 I think they just felt like they didn't want to put the Disney name, the Disney seal of approval on it. It just didn't feel Disney to them. And so they dropped it in Charlie's lap. So once again, Charlie comes running and then everybody drop everything. We, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, we went, uh, uh, you, myself, uh, Gary Trousdale and Tom Cito, to take this pre-show and completely, you know, throw it out and reconceive it. And we said, well, how much do we have to keep of the original? And they said, none of it. All you have to keep is the overall theme, which was stress management and you have to keep the name of the main character. His name is General Knowledge. Yeah. And because because the show was being sponsored by Metropolitan Life, you know those crazy comedy cutups at Metropolitan <laughs> Life, they had to have they had to have the stress management theme. Sure. So so we thought it would be really funny to have the main character General Knowledge just be like this out of control screaming drill sergeant. You know, like 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 uh, Lee Ermey from Full Metal Jacket, um, who would just holler at you constantly while telling you how to manage your stress. We, we thought that would be a, a funny contrast. <laughs> so so we ran with that idea. We we reconceived the main character. Uh, Tom Cito just called him Buzzy. I think on one of his storyboards, and the name kind of stuck. He's like, "Yeah, that Buzzy. We'll call him Buzzy." And so Buzzy became the, the new recruit and general knowledge was, was, was like the, the, the taskmaster who was going to put uh, Buzzy through his paces on his first day piloting a 13 year old boy. And so me, Tom and Gary, we rewrote the entire thing. So all the jokes, you know, all the dialogue, I think, I think uh, we, a writer named Jenny Tripp, I think who was one of Charlie's uh, staff writers. I think she came on and did a polish. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, what we did ended up becoming the basis for this pre-show. And initially, Rob Minkoff was going to direct it, but he got pulled off of that to go down to Florida and direct uh, Roller Coaster Rabbit, which that's was right. a yeah. rabbit cartoon. Yeah. That's a whole other story. Yes, yes. But uh, that, that's a good, Rob can tell that story. <laughs> well, Rob's on my list of people to reach out to. It's well, like, you should. You, I, should. you know, it's so funny. Every time I talk with somebody on this show, I'm I'm sitting here writing up a list of names, <laughs> you know, because names keep popping up. Oh, I got to call yeah. that person. Well, I got to reach out connected. to someone. Like, I know. Well, all of us, in, 
you know, our entire generation, you, me, everybody, we're yeah. all connected by this experience of CalArts in the 1980s and then Disney in the in the mid to late 80s and the 19 and the 1990s. Yeah, which which really is is sort of the second golden age or the renaissance of yeah. Disney animation that we're all we were all part of. Yeah, you know? I know. And, we were all so lucky to 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 have yeah. been there. And, and and all those films are part of uh, the the fabric of American pop culture. Which blows my mind. I mean, yeah. it, it blows my mind that, 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 you know, jokes that were made, you know, just like in an offhand way in a story meeting that broke up the entire room and everybody, everybody laughed, ended up in the movie and then became part of the pop culture lexicon. <laughs> I know it, it really is something else. So Kirk, you're working on Cranium Command. How did uh, Michael Eisner and, and Jeffrey like what you guys did? Well, uh, I remember we pitched the the, the brand new approach um, and all the boards to uh, to Jeffrey in, in in Charlie's office over on on uh, Airway um, uh, in Glendale. That was a street in this industrial park where in Glendale that that uh, feature animation had been had been moved to the warehouse. Yes, yet another <laughs> warehouse. My entire career series of warehouses. Um, and I remember Gary Trousdale pitched the boards and, and Gary gave a bravura performance. Gary, Gary played all the parts, you know, general knowledge in particular and punctuated, you know, every, every one of general knowledge's lines with a whack on the storyboard with this pointer. <laughs> and Jeffrey cracked up. Jeffrey thought it was hilarious. So the short guy greenlit and, and, uh, uh, like I like I said earlier, Rob had gotten pulled off of it to go on the roller coaster, uh, roller coaster rabbit. So they turned to me and Gary and said, uh, "Can you direct the short?" I mean, they, they they figured we were the most familiar with the material at this point, and you know, it was just a short. How badly could we mess it up? <laughs> but but uh, uh, so basically, we had four minutes of animation to do in ninety days. So it was a really fast turnaround time, but. Uh, parallel to this, uh, Rescuers Down Under uh, was in production, and they had fallen in to the dreaded story hole, and they were trying to dig their way out. And they had a lot of animators, really, really good, top-notch, feature-quality animators, who didn't have anything to do. So we got Andreas Deja and Chris Wall and Dave yeah. Bruxma, um, um and, and many others to come over and work on our crazy little cranium, cranium command short for, for 90 days. So, so it, it upped the animation quality of the short, you know, by an order of magnitude. Yeah. And, and we were able to deliver something that, 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 you know, was, uh, was very fast paced and silly with a lot of uh, kind of a mixed media approach. Uh, Gary and I were big Monty Python and Terry Gilliam fans. Mm -hmm. So, so we, we wanted to combine a traditional animation with 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 cutout animation. Sure. So 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 that was a big component of it. Um, I was also a huge Ward Kimball fan, and so was Brian McEntee. That was the first time I worked with Brian. Well, actually, no, I'd worked with Brian on Toaster, but Brian did art direction uh, on Cranium Command. So that was the first time I worked with Brian as an art director at Disney. Yeah. Um, so so. Uh, uh, both he and I were big Ward Kimball fans, so 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 we wanted the short to have a bit of a Ward Kimballish feel to it, just in terms of the pace and the mixed media and kind of collage approach. 
And, and by the way, all those choices would would actually aid you in such a tight schedule and uh, and from a budget standpoint as well, I would imagine. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Because we were able to, to use, you know, like found images, which Brian would literally uh, uh, be be uh, affixing to cells. Now, here's a bit of trivia. Not a lot of people know. Cranium Command was the last traditionally cell painted project at the Disney studio. It, it was because uh, Prince and the Pauper was still in production, and that That's was right. the last uh, uh, full short, theatrical short, that was yeah. done on cell. And the last feature, of course, was little, The Little Mermaid. Right. But the, but, but, uh, the very last project, mm-hmm. short feature or otherwise, that was, done tra- that was traditionally cell-painted was Cranium Command. That's, uh, that is mm-hmm. a nice bit of trivia. Yeah, and, and after that, everything went digital. Which, by the way, I am a huge fan of. I, I, I was so excited when I started seeing the early tests for, for the CAP system mm-hmm. and the level of production value that, that, that uh, we were going to be able to bring back to the features because of shops. Oh, absolutely. Without I was a question. so excited about that. Yeah. And, and, and we were all very lucky, I think, during that period because it really was a, a transition from uh, from the traditional uh, handmade uh, aspect of animated films to the the introduction of digital technology into the process. Yeah, yeah. The, the, again, it was so serendipitous. It was just, t- I mean, talk about being at the right place at the right time. Yeah, uh, exactly. It was and, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I remember after going to the rap party screening for The Little Mermaid, which was really the first time that I got to see, um, um, that was the first time that I really saw the promise that the future held at, at Disney Animation. And up until that point, I was always, I, I felt like I had a bit of an itchy foot and I, I always kind of had one foot slightly out the door thinking, well, you know, maybe if Brad Bird gets another project started, maybe I'll, maybe I'll quit and I'll go, I'll go with Brad again. But after I saw Mermaid at the Mermaid Rat Party, um, I remember, I think I even told Ron Clements this at, 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 at the Rat Party, which was, thank you for reminding me why I wanted to work for Disney. Yeah. Because suddenly... Uh, the future was clear. I, I watched Mermaid unfold, and I was like, "Well, this is what I want to do. These are the types of movies I want to make." Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was it was musical theater up on the screen. Exactly, and yeah. it was just the level of quality and the sophistication of, of of the songs and the storytelling, and the animation and the effects animation. It was it was suddenly all those elements combined in a way that I had not seen from Disney since the 1960s. I mean, yeah. seriously, you had to go back. I had to go back that far in my in my personal history of being a fan of animation to find something that even came close, at least for me, yeah. to, to the quality level that that, that and, Disney and, was famous for. And, and certainly, with with The Little Mermaid, it was Howard Ashman and uh, Alan Menken, yeah, uh, and, and those two guys coming in from Broadway and bringing their you know viewpoint and and their yeah. talents in. Well, to, they really revitalized it. I mean, they're the most pivotal Disney songwriters since the since the Sherman Brothers. Oh, of- a- absolutely, without question. You know, and and you had, and I don't really want us to. I, I, I guess I am going to jump ahead here because uh, you know you got to work very closely with Howard uh, Ashman on Beauty and the Beast. Yes, it was actually because of Cranium Command. It's a, this is actually a good a natural transition. 
it was because of Cranium, Cranium Command that Gary and I got the opportunity to direct Beauty and the Beast. Um, Cranium Command was a troubled project on a very short schedule um, that needed to be bailed out. Mm -hmm. And Beauty and the Beast at that time had become a troubled project on a very, with a very short schedule that had it to be that had to be bailed out and needed a fresh creative approach. Yeah. And uh, uh, originally, uh, Dick and Jill Purdom had been developing the the the, the picture um, over in England. Don Hahn had sent kind of an American skeleton crew over there to to help them uh, bail it out. But they had had an early screening of the story reel that that went disastrously bad. I, I remember like, that. Yeah, like, you know, blood running down the hallways bad. Yeah, and um, because of that screening, uh, Gary and I got the phone call, which was um, once again called at the on the drop of the hat into Charlie Fink's office. I think it was on a Wednesday. And he said, can you be on a flight to New York this weekend? There's a really good chance you guys might get to direct Beauty and the Beast. And Gary and I just looked at each other thinking we were on candid camera. We couldn't, we couldn't believe it, you know, to, to, to go from this wacky little four minute short to a full on feature just seemed like, like an insane leap. And even though both of us were, were absolutely scared green, you know, by the prospect, we also knew that, 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 this was a once in a lifetime opportunity and we'd be fools to say no. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I want to ask you a question. Um, after you guys took over as directors on Beauty and the Beast, was there, was there already some of the songs recorded or in no. production or were you really from the get go with we the retooling? Yes. We, we, uh, Gary and I were part of the team from the get go. I okay. think Howard Ashman and Linda Wolverton might've had a couple, two, three weeks lead time on us. Okay. But, but, but Gary and I went to New York. We brought a skeleton crew of artists, Chris Sanders, Brenda Chapman, Roger Allers, mm -hmm. uh, might've also been, uh, uh Bruce Woodside and, and, and Sue Nichols might've been with us as well. Yeah. Um, so we had our kind of commando team of designers and board artists we, we ended up in a, uh, a conference room in Disney's offices on Park Avenue in New York and uh, met with Howard and Linda. And literally all they had was an outline that was maybe four pages long. And the only, uh, uh, the songs literally only existed as notations in the margins by Howard, mm. where, where uh, I mean, this is how detailed the outline was. It would say, uh, and again, this was the original structure of the, of, of the movie before we, you know, moved some sequences around sure. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. The outline read, uh, 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 Maurice gets captured by the beast and the objects feeling bad for him uh, uh, make him a big fancy dinner. And then in the margin was written by Howard, song? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> That's how detailed the outline was. <laughs> That's so, so awesome. literally, yeah, literally, we, we we kicked around not only ideas for 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 the object characters and what their personalities might be, but we also kicked around ideas for possible song spots. Howard was way ahead of us because that's just his genius. That was just the way he thought. But but some of the ideas for songs were create were uh, crafted in those early meetings in New York. Wow. 
that and I have to say uh when you got into um uh the uh, script as it was developing Howard and Alan were doing demos of of songs they were coming up with right that's correct and because we were on such a short schedule we literally were working on every facet of the production simultaneously yeah. So while Howard and Alan were creating demos for the songs that they knew were going to be in the movie, um, uh, Chris Sanders is working on character design. Brian McIntyre is doing art direction uh, uh, thumbnails, and and uh, Roger and Brenda are are, are doing storyboards. Yeah. Um, so I remember. And, there was- I, I was going to say, uh, with our listeners, I, I want them to understand this film was not only troubled at the beginning, but it, it was on a very tight budget. Oh, yeah. I recall. Like yeah. Jeffrey was like, it's not going to go over a penny more than X, you know? Yeah. 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 No, I think, I think Beauty was done for less than 20 million, quite, yeah. quite frankly. And that was in, you know, 1989 money. So, you know, yeah. you, you do the math. But but it, it was that was still that was still a pretty low price point, and and Disney was going through something that they called you know the austerity program back then. <laughs> yes, I and, remember and that. Every division was you know was feeling the heat. You know, we so 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 belts were really being tightened on on, on productions. Skull Rock Podcast answers your email. You know, um, uh, when you started casting voices, and I and I'm asking this question because one of our listeners sent a note in saying, "Kirk, can you discuss your relationship with David Ogden Styers? He's been featured in many of your films and is a favorite among Disney fans." Yes, no. Uh, 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 David Ogden Styers came to us um, through the audition process. We are auditioning actors for the voice talents. And we had, we held auditions both in New York and in Los Angeles. And David Ogden Styers came about because of one of our audition sessions uh, in Los Angeles. He, like all the other actors, came in to read um, uh, for the part of Cogsworth. And <laughs> interestingly, he came in to read just after Jamie Farr. <laughs> Jamie Farr had come in to read. And so it was like this mash mini reunion for you listeners who don't know mash was a really popular uh, uh, uh like korean war set uh, uh, comedy on the uh in the 1970s and early 80s uh, uh on television and david ogden styers played uh, uh played a very important role in that and so did jamie farr and th- i don't think they'd even seen each other since the last season of mash wrapped mm-hmm. and so they had they had this big reunion uh uh, uh at our audition and so after Jamie leaves, uh, uh, David steps up to the mic and uh, starts to read for the role of Cogsworth. And Gary and I literally fell off our chairs laughing. Right. He was so damn funny and he was such a natural that he just walked away with it from his first audition. We were like, look no further. <laughs> you know? and, and a wonderful guy too. I mean, yeah. really, I, I had the pleasure of working with him on a couple of small projects and oh, just a really nice man. Yeah, our, I, uh, our whole experience with David was so positive and he was so much fun to work with and he was such a, a generous and creative actor mm-hmm. and brought so much to the part. He was always willing to, to you know, to do a little improvisation and, and, and tweak the lines a little bit to, 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 you know, just add an extra injection of humor and personality. 
uh, one line that he improvised on the day was was where uh, the line as written was, well, there's the usual things, uh, flowers, chocolates, and David improvised uh, promises you don't intend to keep. And, and <laughs> we just died. And we were like, that's going in, that's going in the movie. And that line became... That, that again, that, like, like you were pointing out earlier, one of those one of those lines that become, you know, part of the cultural le- lexicon. I remember seeing Beauty and the Beast when it opened uh, at the El Capitan Theater, and that line brought the house down. Mm-hmm. There was so much laughter that it obliterated like the next the next several lines of dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> but getting back to David, uh, our experience with him was so great that we just kept bringing David back. He, sure. he seemed like a good luck charm. Yeah, so yeah, always looked for a part for David Styers. It's like Ratzenberger for the Pixar films. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I'll tell you a Ratzenberger story one day. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but, but you know, while we're talking about voice talent, um, did, was there any characters in Beauty and the Beast that you and Gary felt like, oh, I really want this actor or actress to do yes. the voice, and that sure. was the person you hired? Yes, from day one, literally from the first drawing that Chris Sanders did, and this was in a conference room in Fishkill, New York. By that time, our story commando team had relocated to uh, a little upstate town, up, you know, up the Hudson River from New yeah. York City called Fishkill. This is where Howard was living. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were in this Marriott residence in Sullivan know. County, <laughs> Sullivan exactly. County, New York. Yeah, I know. Exactly. It. Yeah. And, uh, uh, uh I remember uh, uh, Chris had done this 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 beautiful sketch of, of this uh, teapot character who we knew was going to be very matronly and warm and be kind of kind of the source of, of wisdom in this story. And from the get go, we said we said we see her as Angela Lansbury, and Howard was like, "Oh my, of course, so do I. That's perfect." And so we, we knew from the beginning, you know, Howard, of course, being mm-hmm. a theater guy, absolutely worshipped Angela Lansbury. Yeah, yeah. So so, so uh, that was a complete, you know, no brainer, as as they say. And so that part was literally written for her, and we were lucky enough to get her. Mm. Wow. And any of the other characters, or did they? Did you go through an no, audition the, process? With the exception of Angela, all the other characters were, were found through the audition process. That includes Paige O'Hara for Belle, mm-hmm. Jesse Cordy for LeFou, Richard White for Gaston. All all of those wonderfully, wonderfully talented actors uh, came through in the audition process. Oh, should I tell my Robbie Benson story? Yes, tell your Robbie Benson story. story. So, <laughs> <laughs> here's a good casting story. We really struggled trying to find the right voice for the Beast. And we auditioned, I think, every Broadway leading man there was the year that we held our auditions. And nothing was quite striking our ears right. And and uh, they weren't striking Jeffrey's ears right either. He, he rejected everything that we, that we played for him. Um, so one day, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're continuing to move ahead with boards, with recording, with 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 with, with casting, but we still haven't found found uh, the right voice for the Beast. Up to this point, I'm doing the role of the Beast. I, I'm literally doing all the Beast lines as scratch dialogue in the story reel, mm. and we haven't found the Beast yet. Um, our casting director, a wonderful guy named Albert Albert Tavares, he's no longer with us. Um, uh, he brings in a tape and he said, I want you guys to hear this tape. I think I have somebody for the beast. And we said, well, who is it? And he said, Robbie Benson. And you both laughed. And, yeah. Well, we just took a beat and we were like, Robbie Benson, <laughs> you know, 
Ice castles, Robbie Benson. <laughs> you know, Robbie was 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 you know a teenage heartthrob in the 1970s, but sure. really, at least from our perspective, hadn't done a lot since then. So so uh, you know, we took Albert at his word and and we listened to the tape, and something clicked. Robbie had this wonderful combination of of gruffness but he also had vulnerability. Mm. And for the first time, he found the humor in the character for the first time. Mm. He, there, so, so, so it was the combination of those elements that suddenly made this character feel three-dimensional, that made him feel like, like there, was a, there was a beating heart and a soul underneath all of that fur. And it just felt right. So we, we said, this is great. What do we do? And we're like, well, we need to play this for Jeffrey. And so, you know, it was kind of a repeat of the exact same thing. We went to Jeffrey and we said, we have a tape we want you to hear. We think he's perfect for the beast. And he's like, well, who is it? And we said, Robbie Benson. Jeffrey goes, Ice Castle's Robbie Benson. <laughs> but, but, you know, he, he, he humored us and he, and, and he listened to it and he loved it. I mean, he, 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 he like th- thought Robbie nailed it. And so, so uh, Robbie was cast as the beast. And oddly, I think it was because Robbie hadn't done anything in a while. Jeffrey wanted to keep the, the, the casting of Robbie like a big secret. Like he didn't want to tell anybody until literally after the movie was in theaters. He didn't want to tell people. He didn't want it to like be like a big story in the press that Robbie Benson was doing this movie. Yeah. I'm not hundred percent sure why. I don't know whether because he thought that would be like whether it would be a negative to publish to to, to promote Robbie or 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 whether it would be more positive to kind of mm. reveal that that it turned out to be Robbie Benson. I'm not I'm not exactly sure. But nonetheless, you know, Robbie turned out to be to be an absolutely uh, a terrific collaborator mm-hmm. and and I really feel like like you know Robbie was kind of the secret ingredient that was missing from the recipe because if that character doesn't work if that character if you can't relate to that character and feel for what that character is going through you right. don't have a movie and, right. and R- Robbie really was you know our, our our window into that movie he gave he gave Glenn so much uh, uh, that he could perform with mm. uh, uh, so, so, you know, Robbie was irreplaceable and I, I was so happy to have him. You know, and I, I also would sit there and, and, and say that the voice talent that was chosen, there, there, there really was a synergy uh, with, with all of those uh, characters. Uh, it seemed to, to really sort of gel together, if you yeah. will. Uh, they yeah. all felt, they felt like they should be together. Yeah, they really, I mean, it, uh, part of that was just serendipitous, just, mm-hmm. just like really uh, uh, terrific actors that we happened to cast. Some of that was, was, a, was the result of, of uh, our recording process. When we recorded the songs, uh, uh, and I think we did most of the songs in New York with a full orchestra and the full cast, we recorded the songs on Beauty like you'd record a Broadway cast album. Mm-hmm. So, so um uh, David Stiers and Angela Lansbury and Jerry Orbach were able to play off of each other like an ensemble. And in some of those sessions, we also had Paige and Robbie, you know, in the studio at the same time. So I think we were able to get uh, uh, kind of get some sparks to fly between the actors that we wouldn't necessarily have been able to get had we recorded all of them separately, which is usually typical. Right. And how, and, and how we recorded most of Beauty and the Beast 
But because we recorded the, the, the songs as an ensemble, like, like a Broadway cast album, um, I think we really, we, we, we were really able to, to, to create the feeling of relationships between those characters that might not have been, you know, as strong had we, had we done it the other way. You, you can absolutely feel it. Yeah. You know, and, and you might not have felt it had you recorded them separately. Exactly. Um, you know, we're, we're, I, we could sit and talk about Beauty and the Beast for another hour and a half, oh, probably, so or true. longer. But uh, uh, being mindful of the time, I did want to get to a couple of other questions that we had from our listeners. Sure. Uh, one, this, since we were talking Beauty and the Beast, uh, uh, one, one question we have is, Kirk, what was your reaction to seeing the live action Beauty and the Beast? Um, I'm ashamed to say that I have not sat through and watched the entire live action Beauty and the Beast. But you were involved with it in some way, right? You were a creative um, consultant? It, it, interestingly, Gary and I got a screen credit as creative consultants on it, yeah. but neither Gary or myself ever had a single meeting. No, nobody ever call, called you and said, what do you think? No, never. Not wow. one. I mean, I think, I think it might've been, you know, Don Hahn's doing behind yeah. the scenes okay. to, to be pushed to give Gary and I a credit, which was very generous of them. You know, I yeah. really appreciated, appreciated. Yeah. I'm kind of ashamed to say that I, that I haven't watched the movie all the way through. No, but that's okay. I, I mean, yeah. I'm just, I'm just curious, like, you know, uh, uh, how do you feel about uh, some of the animated uh, properties being turned into live action films? It's 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 a mixed it's a mixed uh, uh, mixed bag for me. I have mixed feelings. Yeah, about. yeah. Uh, some I, of good. Some are good. Some are bad. Exactly. No, I, I love the fact that all the movies that that me and you and all of our peers worked on back yeah. in the nineties are still so beloved by audiences that they would be you know happily that they would happily fork out cash to to, to see sure. a live action adaptation. Yeah. I think that 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 says a lot more about how much they love the work that we did. Yeah, you know, even more than it says about about the the, the final product of the live action adaptation. Um, but, it's it's giving choice, you know. And I, yeah. this is this is my view. I I think when they do these types of things, they're they're creating a choice for the audience that loves the story, and uh, and the 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 bottom line is that the initial exposure to those stories is those animated films. Yeah. So 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 the nineteen ninety one animated Beauty and the Beast is is the touchstone it's the basis and if they want to make a live action version a stage version a book version a right. version a tv show whatever it is it's all emanating from that one touchstone that you guys created i think that's yeah. a i think that's a really great way of looking at it dave I, I i mean i mean you know i had to get used to the fact that these characters were eventually going to become you know, Happy Meal toys and and ice cream cakes shows, yeah. <laughs> and I have yeah. to be cool with that. They're just gonna, they're just going to be part of our popular culture. You yeah. know, you got to you got to sort of kiss them goodbye and pat them on the head and and, and hope that that popular culture embraces them. Yeah. So so looking at it that way, you know, I think it's an overall positive. Even mm -hmm. if even if you know they made some choices that I wouldn't necessarily have made. Right. I want to see the choices I, I would have made. Watch the original. <laughs> exactly. You made them. I already did it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, our next question, we're going to depart from Beauty and the Beast here. Uh, can you please discuss the development and design of the Ulysses 
for 2001's Atlantis, The Lost Empire, which, by the way, I think is a underrated movie. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, Atlantis is is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm I've been absolutely delighted over the past year to have become acquainted with what has turned out to be a legion, a veritable legion of fans for this movie. Uh, this movie uh, ended up having a have an incredibly long shelf life, you know, as as um, on on home video. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know Disney Plus is running it now, so a lot of people are getting the chance to see it who who, who had never seen it before in its initial run. And um, it's been really gratifying for a movie that 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 a lot of people you know kind of kind of were disappointed in because of it, it didn't really perform financially like a lot of the movies had during that decade. Um, I have encountered so many people who absolutely loved it and said it was their absolute favorite growing up, and so that that's been really rewarding. Mm-hmm. But getting back to the question about the Ulysses, uh, the submarine design came about mostly because of, of mine, Gary, and Don's and Tab Murphy's affection for the Nautilus from uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah, and we knew we wanted to have a submarine in this movie, and we wanted it to be like an absolute kick-ass, cool submarine. Um, so we put a uh, designer on it who came from the world of, lo- of live action. His name was Matt Codd. Mm. One of the things that was different about the development of Atlantis from, from, from some of the other projects I worked on is that we actually pulled on a lot of artists uh, who, who either worked in live action as, as uh, production designers or uh, in comics. Uh, Mike Mignola being mm-hmm. the best example. Because we wanted this movie to have a visual language that was more uh, more like an adventure movie, more like a comic book. Sure. Excuse me. So it was really Matt Codd who created the initial drawings that became the basis for uh, uh, for the Ulysses for the submarine, and um, I think he was inspired by the look of a whale. I, I think I think that was kind of where he got the the the, the silhouette. I think the silhouette kind of comes from a blue whale. Um, but the rest is just all Matt, you know, he, he, he really loved the time period knew we were trying to go for this kind of, kind of, you know, we didn't, we didn't have the word steampunk at the time, but, but, but we, we were, we were, we were on the, you were on the cutting, the cutting edge. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, we were influenced by all, by all the same stuff that, that is popular, popularly referred to as steampunk now, you know, uh, the Jules Verne stuff, the, Mm -hmm. the, the, all that kind of, uh, late uh, 19th century, early 20th century uh, technology. Um, when I was a kid, I absolutely loved the TV series, The Wild Wild West. Yeah. I absolutely loved uh, Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This was kind of a merger of those two for me. I love, I love you know, late Victorian or early 20th, early 20th century technology, uh, you know, uh, done up in kind of a, like a futuristic way. Well, uh, this is bringing us to the end, but it's not really the end, Kirk, because I think we're going to have to have you back in the fall and we can talk uh, Atlantis, the Lost Empire. Sure, love to. More, more in depth, but there's there's plenty of other shows to talk about, like Hunchback yes. and uh, some of the other projects that you worked on, The Spirited Away and sure. uh, o- Open Season. Uh, I mean, there's we, we've got plenty to talk about and we... Yes, absolutely 
We absolutely want to have you back and we will book you back in the fall. Uh, you know, again, we cannot cover people's careers in an hour. And uh, we've all, I mean, we're finally all at the age where we, we all have like a, a body of work. <laughs> yeah, no, so it, it's it, a lot it, to talk about. It, it is so true. So uh, with that, uh, I want to say thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, and we're looking forward to having you back again. Uh, and, and I think this, it'll be within six months or so. We'll start talking uh, some of the other projects. Sounds great. This, is, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Kirk. It's always great to see you. Thanks for being on. You bet. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your Main Street to the world of Disney. All right, Dave. What a great conversation with Kirk. I love it. It really was. It It was great catching up with him. He's a terrific guy. And boy, has he done some seminal uh, Disney animated films, you know, from the golden age of Disney animation. Man. Hey, or I should say the Renaissance. Of the Renaissance. Yeah, the Renaissance, second, man. The second golden the age. The second golden age. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are all films that, that are part of the fabric of everyone's lives uh, who listen to this show for sure. And not only that, but, uh, you know, just 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 the depth. He's got so much under his belt just working in, in all those things, you know. Um, he's just entertainment. He's just absolutely. entertainment for sure. But... Uh, I love the fact that we have more great guests coming our way. We do. Uh, next week, we've got a uh, uh, key cleanup artist, uh, painter, and illustrator, Marshall Toomey, coming up next week. I'm looking forward to catching up with him. I haven't seen him in, in probably better, in the, better than a decade. Wow. Uh, and after that, we've got studio chief and producer, Max Howard. We've got Jorgen Klubin, story artist, animator, and Danish rock star. I love that. Uh, and, and we got many more people that we're, we're lining up. Uh, I'm just having a lot of fun here, Al John, with you and these wonderful guests we got. Same, same here. So once again, uh, peeps, if you love Disney, you love pop culture, we'd appreciate it if you leave us those reviews, whether it be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Anchor, you name it, iHeartRadio. Just subscribe if you just happen to stumble upon it. Share it if you love us, and uh, we would appreciate those reviews for sure. Everything uh, helps in the little algorithm there on the interwebs. So be sure to like us on social media. Send us those emails, too. We love hearing from you. Uh, once again, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or John at SkullRockPodcast.com. And, uh, you know, we check the emails and we'll be happy to uh, answer them on an upcoming show. Anything else, Dave, you want to kind of mention? No, you know something? Uh, I would just say uh, if uh, you're interested in the 3D Disneyland book, you can get uh, author signed copies at theoldmillpress.com. Uh, other than that, peace and love to everybody and go out and be kind to one another this coming week. Until next week, we look forward to seeing you. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, 
Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney Podcast. Every week I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth. <laughs>